important. In order to build a life that glorifies God, we've got to be ready for battle. We have to be prepared. This classic passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers and world forces of darkness. That is, these things we cannot see. Against these spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words, build your, build your house with a tornado in mind. Build your life with great trials and testing in mind. You are to clothe yourselves in the armor of a warrior, which has been designed specifically by God to help you prepare to live a life that glorifies him. Get ready for life. I read some time ago about the expedition of John Franklin in 1845. You probably recognize his name. He left England in search of a northwest passageway, a seaway for ships through the Canadian Arctic region that would connect the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. And um, he took with him on that expedition 138 highly trained men, chosen men from the Royal Navy. None of them, however, were trained for what lay ahead. In fact, no one knew what lay ahead. They didn't seem to be aware even of the severe weather conditions that they would, they would encounter in and around the North Pole, as hard as it is to imagine. Uh, nonetheless, they sailed off in two state-of-the-art ships, completely loaded down with what they believed they would need. Each ship, in fact, was equipped with an auxiliary steam engine and a huge storeroom where they could actually store enough coal to power the ship for 12 days if they got into trouble during their voyage. They were so confident in their quest as they embarked on their voyage with great imperial pomp and and circumstance, but they were unprepared. They had not planned thoroughly enough for what lay ahead with this ice-filled region off North Alaska. In fact, the only clothing they took along with them were their uniforms and thin overcoats provided by Her Majesty's Navy. Two months after their departure, a British whaler made contact with them and he would be the last European to see them alive. For the next 12 years, search parties uncovered the path and the steps taken by this ill-fated Franklin expedition and they put the pieces together. The expedition had evidently stalled in icy water. Eskimos reported seeing uh, British Navy men pushing a skiff across the ice. Then members of the search party saw the haunting sight at Simpson Bay, three masts sticking up through icy waters. They excavated that ship and the other and found a number of things that gave them details of the demise of this party. Amid all their findings, the most devastating of all was the discovery that neither ship had even taken the time to stock the coal supply. In fact, both ships had turned those huge storerooms into lounges filled with 1,200 volumes apiece, an organ in each one for music, and cupboard space for expensive settings of china and silver for all the officers. One historian said that the Franklin expedition was prepared for weather conditions inside the Royal Navy Officers Club. 
One search party found 30 frozen bodies in a tent near the water's edge. The officers were still dressed in their thin overcoats with their silk scarves still in place. They were confident. Their hopes were high. But they were not prepared for what lay ahead. I wonder if we are ready for what lies ahead. Jesus Christ said, the world will hate you because they hate me. And I wonder if anybody hates us for the right reason. If anybody would hate us because we follow Christ that they so hate and despise. Especially in our culture and generation where the church is seeking the approval and the applause of its culture. Jesus Christ said, are you ready for this? They will hate you like they hate me because you love me. He also warned his disciples in John 16 too, they will make you outcasts. In fact, an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. Imagine that. Imagine the martyrs in our world today. There are more martyrs every year on this planet than there were 200 years ago. Think of this verse in light of today. Listen again. They will make you outcasts and an hour is coming and everyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. Are you ready for that? Jesus said, I came not to grant peace on earth, but division. Members of your family will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. I thought the gospel would make us all one happy reunion. It actually divides. It can actually hurt. Are you ready for that? Believers, Galatians 6.12 says, will be persecuted for the cross of Christ. The godly in Christ Jesus will suffer trouble. 2 Timothy 3.12. Paul wrote his own personal testimony, a testimony that every one of us will admire, but I'm not sure any of us want to have. Here's his testimony. We are reviled, 1 Corinthians 4. We are persecuted. We are slandered. We are roughly treated. We are considered as the scum of the world, the filth of all things. Who wants that testimony to be the scum of the earth? The Apostle Paul would ask, are you ready for that kind of treatment and reputation? Are we dressed for conditions inside the church or are we dressed for battle against the spiritual forces and the enemy of the church evidently Paul assumes that we are not ready and I'm glad he does because we're probably not and so today I take you to the text where he tells us how to get ready for the winter blasts of life For those who want to live for the glory of God. He gives us six pieces of armor. Each one a sermon. We'll put them all together. In verse 14, the first piece of armor mentioned is the belt of truth. Paul writes, gird your loins with truth. This was a long leather uh, undershirt that hung to the thighs. It was critical, however, in that everything connected to this apron. Your text may be translated. uh, This shirt this undershirt, the sword hung from it, Uh, the breastplate attached to it, everything 
that prepared that soldier for battle was connected to the truth, dependent on the undergirding of the truth of God. And so also is the Christian. Apart from this inspired record of truth, apart from this infallible word from God, apart from this God-breathed inspired text, we do not have the ability to construct life that would be pleasing to God, really capable of withstanding anything, capable of withstanding any false doctrine, capable of, of standing our ground for the glory of God. We're certainly not ready to take on the world system, which is an enemy to the absolute truth of God, unless we have this as the underpinnings of everything we are. Paul goes on in verse 14 to tell us about the breastplate of of righteousness. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. For most soldiers, the breastplate of righteousness was, or the breastplate, I should say, would be nothing more than layers or strips of leather covering their heart and vital organs. If you were wealthy, however, you could have a piece designed, a custom designed, perfectly molded plate of metal. And that's the picture that comes to our minds of a Roman soldier. That was the wealthy one. Those were typically the officers. The regular soldiers just had, just had strips of leather strapped over their shoulders and tied in front that would, that would protect their heart and vital organs. He's referring here to the wealthy ones. Obviously, we, being the sons and daughters of the emperor, have all of his resources to have for us crafted, designed, custom-fitted Breastplates of righteousness covering the way you are specifically, uniquely made. Those things that will come after you. Those attacks of the enemy upon those besetting sins that will affect you. God's, so to speak, perfectly designs, custom makes the breastplate of the righteousness of Christ to cover who we are uniquely and entirely. Interesting nuance in the believer's armor as we face the enemy who also is taking notes, who wants to know us well. Don't forget, next, your shoes. Paul goes on in verse 15 to say you need a good pair of shoes. Now, would you notice he didn't say 15 pair or 30 pair or whatever's on sale? Never mind. Just one good pair. Having shod your feet with the preparation the, the firmness in this context of the gospel of peace. What most people overlook is the fact that shoes were part of the armor. Why would that be? Well, they were necessary for a number of things. One certainly would be for balance, for providing a solid footing. You got to protect your feet. You got to be balanced on your feet. So these shoes fit. It is the gospel of Christ. Paul will write to the Corinthian believers the truth of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. One, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you what? Stand. You stand. The gospel is like a good pair of shoes that gives you balance as you stand for the truth. The shoes are also necessary not only for balance, But for progress, the Romans would take their sandals and prepare a pair of their sandals for battle. And they would embed into the soles, the leather soles, little pieces of metal and pottery and sharp rock. 
creating, in effect, the first century cleat. They could charge a hill and keep their footing and gripping the earth. They, they, would, they would move against opposing forces. They could advance against an enemy in hand-to-hand combat as they gripped the ground, prepared for battle. These were first century cleats, like a football player out on the gridiron. Cleats help him move the ball against opposing forces. You don't need cleats on if you're just walking. You need cleats on to grip the earth as you move against opposing forces. If you've ever been to a football game, and I've been to a few, you've noticed how people dress to cheer on their favorite athletes, their team, put all kinds of things, they connect them to their face and their head, and they put on helmets, and they wear $150 jerseys. Some of them take their jerseys off, and they've painted across their bellies some letter, and they're all lined up with their... their, um, Friends spelling out something, hopefully something correct. And there they cheer on their fan or as fans cheer on their... You know what is interesting to me as I thought about this? I've never seen a fan in the stands wearing cleats. Not once. You don't need cleats in the stands. You don't even need them on the sidelines, do you? Only players on the field need them. So Paul is assuming we're going to get in where the action is. We're going to get into the game. We're going to move. We're going to advance the gospel of peace against opposing forces. So he he uses the metaphor of cleats gripping the ground against the weight of that opposing force, which is the kingdom of darkness and the enemy of our souls. Paul is assuming we're going to advance against that force. He draws our attention next to the shield of faith, verse 16. In fact, this is the only piece of armor that he tells us what it will do. He says, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you may be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, this explicitly states that Satan is an aggressor. He isn't standing by watching you He isn't going to allow you to coast to heaven. He's aggressive. Listen, he hates you. He despises you. And any believer who will say, oh God, so construct my life so that I may glorify God. He really hates and despises you. Because he hates the worshiper of God. Because ultimately and finally he hates God. Paul is referring here to a common practice during his day when an army came against a city in ancient days, they would begin an aerial attack first, which like modern forces do today. They would dip their arrows in pitch, they would light them, and they would fire them over the walls of the city they wanted to overtake. When the arrow would land, the pitch would splatter and it would start fires all over. So they could literally burn a city to the ground before ever engaging in combat. They would also do the same against an advancing army that was marching toward them. 
They're archers would dip those arrows in pitch, light them and fire them at the soldiers. And whenever it would hit the shield or the body of some soldier, the pitch would splatter and it would start fires on their clothing and the clothing of the soldiers around them. And you can imagine the utter panic and terror fighting fire as they would have to do. So their shields were covered with leather and before going into battle, they would soak them in water. So that whenever the arrows hit and the pitch splattered, it would only sizzle and burn out. Paul is saying, you can't survive. You can't march against the enemy without your shield of faith. That is your trust in your sovereign God, in the promises of God, the providence of of God, the the protection of God. Ultimately, you you keep the shield there. The, The enemy is firing at you. I'm afraid most Christians think, you know, I can take on the world myself. Take your best shot. No, have your shield ready. You never know when fire is going to break out all around you. A few years ago, I was on the phone with a pastor. I'd only met him by phone and we were making some arrangements and some plans and we talked briefly and decided that we'd talk again on Friday and finalize all the plans that we were making. He didn't call. He was supposed to call me back and so I waited until Friday evening and then I called him. We talked for just a moment saying hello. He mumbled something and I said, now let's just jump right in here. Let's talk about the plans and let's, let's finalize things. And he said, well, you know, frankly, I can't, I can't find my calendar right now. I don't know where it is. And I thought that was a bit strange. He said, as he continued, things are a bit turned upside down right now. You see, my nine-year-old son was hit by a car yesterday and killed could I call you back in a few days? I hung up stunned and saddened and then convicted. I remembered as I thought through what he was going through the night before, what I was doing. I was down at the drugstore. Our youngest daughter, who was an infant, had been running a high fever through the night and Marcia had her in the bathtub sponging her with cold water and I was at the, one of those 24-7 uh, drug stores getting some medicine, and I was in there complaining. Lord, you know, of all things, life is just great. Why can't you time something like this for my day off after breakfast? Your, your timing of these trials is so inconvenient. And then it hit me. When I got off the phone and I was sitting there, I realized that while I was complaining... In the drugstore, he and his wife were weeping beside their little boy, hanging on to their shields of faith like never before, unexpected, unplanned. Don't go out without a shield of faith, ultimately. In the sovereign plan of God for your life, no wonder the enemy would hate that particular piece of armor. One of the things he will do is try to cause us to doubt the plan and promise and providence and, and, and love and grace of God for us. If we can drop our shield, Lord, you know, this isn't worth it. 
you're not doing a very good job. Forget it. You lay your shield down of faith in his providence. And now you are wide open. And the enemy knows it. Perhaps that's why he comes and constantly accuses God before us. Seeking to get us to doubt our wonderful Lord. It's important to know what kind of shield this was, by the way. There were two kinds of shields in the Roman army. One was a small round shield. That's the one you think of when you, when you think of a shield because that's the picture in Sunday school material. And it is an accurate a picture, but that would be for light skirmishes and hand-to-hand combat. When an army advanced against an opposing army, there was another kind of shield they would use, a thurios This is the word used by Paul in this text. It was four feet tall. It was two feet wide. It was nicknamed the wall. And that's what Paul is referring to here. Among other things, the soldier could literally plant his shield in the ground and duck down behind it and hide. What a great analogy at times to the Christian life. You think, well, look, if I got a shield of faith, I'm out there engaged. No, sometimes you plant it in the ground and you duck down and you hide until the barrage is over. They would wait it out with those water-soaked thurios planted in the ground. Reminds me of what David said when he wrote, For you, O Lord, art a shield about me. The shield could protect the soldier in times like those. But it also united the army, secondly. The Roman army had invented this rather novel development regarding the shield and were often victorious because of it. The shields were notched, beveled, so that they could hook together one soldier next to the other on both sides, creating a wall of steel. You can imagine the intimidation and the power of a line of soldiers with their shields notched together, moving toward the enemy. What a picture, by the way, of the unified body of believers, the church. It's a wonderful picture of the church, a body of believers advancing into hostile territory for the glory of God. No wonder the powers of darkness hate to see another believer hook his shield to another believer. He would rather keep us divided and and, and bring dissension doesn't matter how small or how great. If he can do that to a church, he has just about one great victory. Is it any wonder then that the most dangerous times for a church body are times of disunity? Some of the greatest times of danger for an individual believer is to become isolated from other believers. And Satan loves to see that. And when there is division and dissension in any local body... By the way, the devil is happy to do nothing more than provide ammunition for both sides. There's little doubt that the worst enemy of the church is oftentimes the church. The thing that can keep a church from moving forward is the church. The thing that sometimes keeps the world from winning its particular world is the world has won the church. The thing that can discourage young believers from growing up in their faith is older believers who refuse to grow up. What kind of impact can any church have, can we have, when with unified hearts 
toward advancing the glorifying of God and the gospel of Christ find us locked together, moving like that early church in Jerusalem, we're told in the text in Acts 2, they were of one mind, one purpose, to glorify God, to advance the gospel, and it says, and they had a joyful and glad heart. You would think that the test of, of, of the nature and personality of a church would simply be its doctrinal statement. No, it can be the sound of laughter as well. It can be the expression of joy. It can be a hug, a handshake. It can be unity in purpose to see God glorified. No wonder the devil so hates it when he sees it happening. The shield not only protected the soldier and united the army, but it also, and I love this particular facet of it, it reflected the sunlight. The thurios was made basically of, of one large plank of wood overlaid with leather, but in the middle of it would be a centerpiece, a round piece of brass. And before going into battle, the soldiers would polish that so that it shone like a mirror, so that as they hooked their shields together and marched toward the enemy, they would time their direction and location so that they could turn their shields and act as reflectors, shining the reflection of the sunlight into the eyes of their enemy, throwing off their aim, distracting them, causing them to have to look away. What a great analogy to us as believers and to the church of Jesus Christ. Are we not reflecting simply the glory and the radiance of our Lord Jesus Christ? It is the light of the gospel which we are reflecting. It isn't our light. It is him. It is he. It is his light. It is, it is the light of Christ reflected into our world which has the power to dispel the darkness and bring truth and life to mankind. Now quickly, verse 17 says to take the helmet of salvation. Now this doesn't refer to being saved. Paul is not saying that after you got the shoes on and the belt of truth and the breastplate and you've got the shield of faith, now get saved. No, if you weren't saved, you wouldn't have access to the armor. In fact, you wouldn't be in the army as one of the soldiers of Christ if you weren't already saved. So we have to broaden our understanding of salvation and understand it in the light of the New Testament's fuller revelation that it has three tenses. There is past salvation, present salvation, and future salvation. Past salvation we refer to as justification. It's the moment when you were forever justified before God, never to lose your salvation, ever. You were born again by the Spirit of God. You were justified. Present salvation, the apostles talk about the work of sanctification, where we grow up in Christ. And future salvation is glorification, where we will be with and in the fellowship of our Lord. So past salvation is that moment when we were delivered from the penalty of sin. Present salvation is the ongoing battle over the power of sin. And future salvation is deliverance from the very presence of sin. So get ready to fight. The enemy will take those aspects and do battle against the believer. He will bring doubts to you regarding your past salvation. He will accuse you regarding your failure, regarding sanctification. He will, he will distract your vision toward the coming glorification. In any one of these areas, justification, sanctification, glorification, it is the battle of the mind, by the way. And the greatest battle we fight and face is not something we can see. It's something that takes place where? 
right here. And the enemy knows, and so he puts, he embraces, he reflects, he initiates false teaching and truth. So Paul is saying, put on those thoughts which protect you regarding what God has done for you, what God is doing for you, and in you, and what God has provided and prepared for you. Finally, he says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is the principal point of contact with the enemy, with the doctrines of demons, with a world system bent on destroying the truth of God, or at least ignoring it. It isn't our cleverness. It isn't our methods. It isn't our winsomeness. It isn't our skill. It is, simply put, the word of God. The word of God. It is the gospel of God, which is the power of God unto salvation. It is that which delivers mankind. It isn't me It isn't even what I might come up with to say. It is whatever God chooses to use through his word. We've got a cemetery out here on our property. I don't know if you've noticed it. Belongs to the church across the street. Deeded to them and they've allowed us to build within a certain parameter of the cemetery. I could go out there this afternoon, walk up to the tombstone, find the name and say, John Smith, arise. What do you think will happen? Oh, come on. (laughs) You're absolutely right. Oh, but one day it will be the word of God that will in effect with a trumpet blast say arise. And every one of his will. So before that day comes, the only resurrection power is that point of contact with, with that which opposes God, it is the power of the word of God, which you heard in the gospel, and your dead spirit came to life and now communes with God through Christ. So we preach, we teach the word. Now, the Roman sword was two feet long. It was sharpened on both sides. This was the one they used in battle. That way they could cut your head off moving this way. They could cut your head off moving this way. Isn't that wonderful to know? Either way, It worked. The writer of Hebrews said that the word of God is is alive and it is sharper than any what? Two-edged sword. He's talking about the weapon of the first century. He says this is more powerful than any tool, any weapon known to man. So use it to penetrate the heart, to open the heart, the spirit, the truth of God which penetrates and brings life. Now let me draw quickly two inferences from this paragraph as you attempt to construct a life capable of withstanding the icy blasts of the enemy. Number one, first, God has not given the Christian final victory over sin, but the potential for repeated victory over sin. So don't be caught off guard, especially those of you who are young in the faith. Don't expect one victory over temptation to mean that you have conquered that temptation. There, I took care of that particular sin. Wonder what's next. Oh no, that one will come back again and again and again and again. And if you sense any lull in temptation, it is only because the enemy's looking for a bigger gun or he's reloading. 
No, you, you, you during this lifetime do not have final victory over any one sin. You have the potential, however, for repeated victory over the same sin. And grace from God when you fail and you fail again. Every day, ladies and gentlemen, this is the true picture of Christianity. You will face tests of integrity, of honesty, purity, perspective, trust. You have the God-granted potential for victory at every turn. But he expects you to dress out for war. That's why when you were saved, God didn't hand you a crown and a robe. He handed you a sword and a shield. Are you ready? Number two, the battle in the believer's life does not diminish with commitment to Christ. It becomes more dangerous. For the believer especially who says, I'm going to place my life under construction. Lord, I want you to consider my life a building site whereby your spirit, even if it takes a wrecking ball, comes in and demolishes, reconstructs, rebuilds, radically changes, whatever. I want you to build my life, constructing it for your glory. If you say that, my friend, you are doing nothing less than challenging the enemies of God to make you their enemy. Like never before. You just painted a big bullseye on your life and you said, come after me. I seek to glorify God. All that opposes heaven will now oppose you. If that's your heart, get ready. I believe you are. I can tell by the look in some of your eyes, you're ready. That's your prayer before God. Use my life, take my life, construct my life for your glory. Well, just remember... To dress out for war. And, and I, think, I think the Apostle Paul would be, would be thrilled. That's your heart. In fact, he's speaking to you. He says, and just listen. Finally now, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might. That is, you trust his strength, not yours. But put on the full armor of God. So that you will be able to stand firm. You ought to circle those words. You will be able. What a great promise. You will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, verse 13, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. You will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. This is Paul saying, go for it. Go for it. Be prepared though. Be prepared for the battle of life. In fact, for the battle of your life. And make sure, make sure you're ready. You've traded in scarves for shields and swords. Don't say to God, I want you to construct my life and leave the armor in the closet. Put it on. Put all of it on for the glory of God. 